American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Bernard Nathanson, the radical pro-abortion doctor who had a dramatic change of heart and later a dramatic conversion. He only became Catholic after his 70th birthday. And that was about 20 years after he changed from being one of the men most responsible for abortion becoming the law of the land to one of abortion's biggest opponents. Many have likened his story to that of St. Paul, who, of course, had the dramatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Yeah, his conversion from a life of promoting and committing the most heinous evil of our day to fighting against that evil hammer and tongs. It's just amazing. I remember when I first heard the basic facts of his conversion, just the fact that the founder of NARAL, one of the most virulently pro-abortion outfits around, later in life completely rejected abortion and embraced Catholicism. It was just a real wow moment for me. And when we do a deep dive into the particulars of his own involvement with abortion, his conversion is all the more striking. Yeah, so let's let's, let's just get into his story. Bernard Nathanson was born July 31st, 1926 in New York City. His parents were Jewish and his father was an obstetrician gynecologist or OBGYN. Bernard followed his father into medicine. He went to Cornell University and then to McGill University in Canada, graduating with his medical degree in 1949. In 1952, he became a board-certified OBGYN in New York State, and he joined his father's practice in New York City. But by this point, he already was involved in abortions, though they were still illegal. It seems that while he was in medical school in Canada, he got his girlfriend pregnant, but neither wanted the baby, so he organized an abortion for her and he paid for it. By his own admission, this was when he had his introductory excursion into the satanic world of abortion. While working at a women's hospital in New York in the 1950s, he treated many women who were suffering the effects of illegal abortions, including many, many poor minority women. His experience there made him believe that the way to relieve these women's sufferings was to legalize abortion. He reasoned that if abortions could be provided in a safe and sanitary manner, these women wouldn't have to suffer. In time, he took it upon himself to begin to provide these services, abortions, even though they were still illegal. This led to a break with his father, who opposed the practice strongly. Sometime in the 1960s, he even aborted his own child after getting another girlfriend pregnant. That's just, that's just unimaginable. I know, seriously. But to him, or at least what he convinced himself of, was that abortion was just a medical procedure. He was doing what he was good at and providing a solution to a medical problem. Many years later, after his conversion, he wrote, 
I have aborted the unborn children of my friends, my colleagues, casual acquaintances, even my teachers. There was never a shred of self-doubt, never a wavering of the supreme self-confidence that I was doing a major service to those who sought me out. This is the sort of thing any doctor would say about any procedure that is good or necessary for the patient's health, like removing appendix or, you know, just a cancerous growth. I know, seriously. In the 1960s, Nathanson met Larry Later. Later had interviewed the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, and then written a biography of her. Through all of this work with Margaret Sanger, he became even more convinced that women needed abortion to have equality and bodily autonomy. Under Sanger's influence, Later began to advocate for an expansion of abortion rights. So when he and Nathanson teamed up, you had the perfectly abominable storm. A man who could speak the technical medical language and a man who knew how to use words to manipulate public sentiment. And neither of them had any scruples about lying to achieve their goals. In 1968, Nathanson and later co-founded the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. This organization still exists today, but its name would eventually change to the National Abortion Rights Action League and eventually to NARAL Pro-Choice America. Through NARAL, Nathanson and later did truly amazing work shifting public opinion and completely changing the national conversation on the question of abortion. Yeah, truly amazing in a very macabre, you know, satanic sense. Right, exactly. Yeah. They raised the alarm about 10,000 women dying every year due to illegal abortions. They told everyone over and over again that 60% of Americans supported the legalization of abortion. They claimed that about One million illegal abortions were happening every year, and they insisted that should abortion be legalized, there would not be any increase in the number of abortions done. Everyone who wanted one was getting one already anyhow, but they were being done in dangerous conditions, putting women's lives needlessly at risk. The problem with these stats, however, was that they were all wrong. Not only were they wrong, but they were deliberately fabricated. In 1979, Nathanson wrote a book on the true story of abortion called Aborting America. In it, he made a shocking admission. He says that he and later knew the numbers weren't actually in their favor, so they made up their own numbers. The number of illegal abortions nationwide was about 100,000, not 1 million. The number of women who died from illegal abortions was more like 200 to 250, not 10,000. And the national support was only about 5%, not 60%. But they knew that those numbers would not sway anyone. They knew that they had a gin-up sympathy. So they claimed that the supposed problem was bigger than it really was. And since no one wants to be in the minority, they claimed without any evidence whatsoever that a majority supported abortion rights. It was all a complete fabrication. Also, they knew that the number of abortions would increase dramatically once it was legal, especially since they'd be able to promote this service. And sure enough, within a couple of years of Roe versus Wade, those 100,000 illegal abortions ballooned to nearly 1 million legal abortions per year nationwide. But fabrication of the numbers wasn't all they did. Another huge key for them was vilifying the Catholic hierarchy. They knew they needed a bad guy because they needed to blame someone for how things had been. They couldn't blame regular people for thinking abortion was bad because they'd undercut the goodwill they were generating. They had to give people the boogeyman. 
The Catholic hierarchy provided the perfect villain, an all-male celibate hierarchy with strict rules against contraception and abortion and a shadowy, undemocratic power structure. They literally played the same anti-Catholic card that had stoked fear in the U.S. public since before our national founding. All good things came from American independence and all bad things from the nefarious Pope who was trying to squash the American spirit. The funny thing is, laws against abortion were actually rooted in English common law and had been enacted in the U.S. by Protestant-led state governments. Catholic teaching and authority supported those laws, but the laws had been put on the books when the church was still fairly weak in the U.S. But hey, don't let facts get in the way of a good narrative. The Catholic church was easy to paint as the bad guy, so they did it. And the church wasn't exactly in a great position to push back at the time either. Yeah, no. The church's hierarchy was in a bit of a self-destruct mode all on its own. Between the way Humane Vitae was received and resisted, and the utterly terrible way the liturgical reforms were undertaken and implemented, the church was in internal upheaval and was in no position to defend itself or to hold the line against abortion. But both of those are massive topics all their own, which we're not getting into here. Point is, when the hierarchy needed to be strong and unified to teach with clarity and charity on this most important topic, they were deeply divided within their own ranks. Yeah. So anyhow, the effect was accomplished. In 1970, the state of New York legalized abortion. Nathanson became director of New York's Center for Reproductive and Sexual Health, known by its acronym CRASH. Kind of fitting. A crash isn't exactly a good thing. Very quickly, CRASH became the largest abortion center in the world. Nathanson was at the pinnacle. He was making a lot of money performing abortions, and his ideas were on the march as more states were legalizing abortion. And it wouldn't be long until, in 1973, the landmark Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade would strike down all state laws that prohibited abortion. But just as he was at this pinnacle of his profession and his ideological goals were being realized, Nathanson suddenly began to have some bone-chilling doubt. You might say he crashed. But it was a slow-motion crash, kind of like a train wreck, as car after car came crashing in until his entire world was wrecked. Yeah, well, yeah, something like that. <laughs> the crash began with advances in medical technology, especially imaging technology. Up to this point, the baby in the womb had been a hidden and enclosed world. But with major advances in ultrasound technology, the fetus could be seen in all of its tiny detail. It could be seen moving around, sucking its thumb, and responding to stimuli of various sorts. Nathanson, rather than just push it all aside and go about his very successful and wealthy life, began to realize the implications of this. Unlike what he'd been told and convinced himself about, he realized that the fetus wasn't just an undifferentiated mass of cells, but was distinctly human from a very early stage of gestation. He began to accept that the fetus isn't just another part of the mother's body, like her appendix or a cancerous growth. He began to realize in real concrete terms that there was a new human life in the womb. And he was suddenly deeply unsettled by this realization. He left Crash in 1972, just two years after taking over. But he hadn't abandoned abortion just yet. He moved to St. Luke's Hospital, where he was head of abortion. 
Through the 1970s, he wrestled with the questions now swirling in his mind. He tried to rationalize that some abortions were still okay because, well, they were needed to protect low-income women or single mothers or families that had too many children from the burden of yet another child. He also tried to justify abortions for medical purposes. But eventually, none of these would hold up against the obvious fact that the child in the womb was a new life, separate from the mother's. His own medical training, combined with what he now knew from these new technologies, made that fact undeniable. And if the fetus was a person, and not just an undifferentiated mass of cells, there was no justification for abortion. By 1979, this was cemented in his mind, and he had officially fully shifted from one of abortion's most powerful champions to perhaps abortion's most ardent and important foe. And now he had to face the full import of what he'd done. By his own account, he had either performed or overseen about 75,000 abortions, including 5,000 he'd performed personally. The sheer mass of his own sin weighed heavily upon him. He had never been a particularly religious person, but now he abandoned any shred of faith he still retained. He rejected religion and became an atheist. He sought out answers on how to find not only atonement, but absolution for his guilt in various writers. He even considered suicide. His father and a sister had preceded him in that tragic end. The decade of the 1980s saw him struggle in the depths of these doubts and questions, while at the same time taking positive, concrete steps to fight back against the evil he had helped unleash. In 1984, he produced and narrated the film The Silent Scream. In it, he explains in detail the development of the fetus and the amazing advances in medical technology that had happened in the 1970s. Those advancements which had brought about his own conversion on the abortion question. Also, and this is difficult to watch, he walks the viewer through an ultrasound video of a suction abortion taking place. In the film, the fetus can be seen resting peacefully in his mother's womb and then suddenly getting agitated when the abortion instruments are introduced. The fetus moves around violently, resisting the invasion of the abortion instrument and opening its mouth as if screaming silently. And frankly, the rest is too graphic to characterize. It's just heartbreaking. I watched it while researching this episode, and just, my goodness. Ugh. The film was a sensation. President Ronald Reagan had it shown in the White House and used it as a springboard for pushing pro-life laws. Abortion activists railed against the film and said it was manipulative. Which, considering that Nathanson exposed that their entire movement was based on manipulation and lies, is... You know, kind of something. Kind of rich. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. An illustrative side note on that point. Many years ago, the great Princeton professor, Robert George, attended a lecture given by Nathanson. And in the Q&A session, he asked Nathanson point blank why anyone should believe what he was saying in support of life, since in his talk, he laid bare the many lies he himself had told in support of abortion. In Robbie George's telling, Nathanson was kind of taken aback by the question. He simply stated he would never lie to defend life. He, he kind of said, I became pro-life because the truth of the matter overwhelmed me. Why on earth would I lie to protect life when the truth is so much more powerful? Right. And the pro-abortion side basically bore that out when confronted with the silent scream they couldn't deny what was plainly shown. 
nor the expertise of the man delivering the remarks. What they had to do instead was insist that abortion was still okay because the fetus couldn't feel pain. Yeah, (laughs) tell you what, if you watch the video, that fetus felt something and it didn't look like it was enjoying the experience. It felt pain. Anyhow, some abortion activists admitted that the silent scream was the most effective thing the pro-life side had produced. It caused a major shift in the discussion back toward the pro-life side and put the pro-aborts on the defensive. The silent scream was one of many blows Nathanson would inflict upon the evil edifice he had helped to build, but he still hadn't found peace. In his search, he read widely, including Augustine, Dostoevsky, and Dante's Divine Comedy. He wrote of his search for peace, I felt the burden of sin growing heavier and more insistent. I have such heavy moral baggage to drag into the next world that failing to believe would condemn me to an eternity perhaps more terrifying than anything Dante envisioned in his celebration of the redemptive fall and rise of Easter. I am afraid. In January 1989, he had an experience which pushed him in a new direction. About 1,200 Operation Rescue activists were gathered outside an abortion clinic in Manhattan to blockade the doorways. Many were arrested that day for blocking the sidewalk and barring access to the building. Nathanson was writing an article on the morality of using blockades to try to prevent abortions, so he spent his time walking among the activists, asking them questions, listening to them, and observing them. He wrote of that experience, It was only then that I apprehended the exaltation, the pure love on the faces of that shivering mass of people, surrounded as they were by hundreds of New York City policemen. They prayed for each other, but never for themselves, and I wondered, how can these people give of themselves for a constituency that is, and always will be, mute, invisible, and unable to thank them? It was only then that I began seriously to question what indescribable force generated them to this activity. Why, too, was I there? What had led me to this time and place? Was it the same force that allowed them to sit serene and unafraid at the epicenter of legal, physical, ethical, and moral chaos? About this time, he had become friends with a well-educated priest by the name of C. John McCloskey. McCloskey, a priest of Opus Dei, was well-read, erudite, and a great wit, and he was responsible for a number of prominent conversions in his day, but perhaps none bigger than Nathanson. During their friendship, McCloskey mentored Nathanson through his search for some answer to the question of evil that would fit the void of his own life. Nathanson needed someone like Father McCloskey who, though many years younger, was his intellectual equal and who presented the Catholic faith in all its brilliant reasonableness. Nathanson said, I needed faith, but I needed reason to prop me up. Reason was a safety net for the leap of faith. You can remove the net, but only after you've made the leap. And eventually, in the mid-1990s, Nathanson accepted what had become inevitable. The Catholic Church, with its relentless desire to extend Christ's forgiveness, was the only home for him. Of his conversion, he wrote, The New Testament God was a loving, forgiving, incomparably cosseting figure in whom I would seek and ultimately find the forgiveness I have pursued so hopelessly for so long. And regarding his conversion to Catholicism in particular, not just Christianity in general, he said, 
no religion matches the special role for forgiveness that is afforded by the Catholic Church. And a meaningful, believable forgiveness was what he sought. So, on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, December 8, 1996, Bernard Nathanson was washed clean in the waters of baptism at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City by the Archbishop John Cardinal O'Connor. And it was just perfect that it took place on the Immaculate Conception. I know, seriously. The day we particularly celebrate, she who crushes the head of the serpent, she who was conceived and born without sin. Before his baptism, he wrote, I will be free from sin. For the first time in my life, I will feel the shelter and warmth of faith. That same year, 1996, Nathanson wrote an autobiography titled The Hand of God, in which he gives a deeply personal account of his conversion, as well as an in-depth look at the issues of fetal development and advances in medicine which brought about his conversion. As Nathanson says, I know the abortion issue as perhaps no one else does and he brings his full knowledge to bear on the argument in his book. Nathan said would continue his crusade against abortion until his own death in 2011 from cancer. Abortion isn't yet outlawed in the U.S., but the trends have certainly changed in a pro-life direction. And this change is certainly in part thanks to the efforts of Bernard Nathanson, perhaps the closest thing to a St. Paul conversion story in our times. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, Please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about Bernard Nathanson, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. Hi everyone, this is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. 
could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.